welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Last July, Major League Baseball fans were shocked when Tyler Skaggs, a rising star pitcher for the Los Angeles Angels, died of an overdose in a Texas hotel room. The toxicology report indicated he overdosed on a toxic mix of the opioids, oxycodone, and fentanyl, along with alcohol. Under the current drug testing program, Major League Baseball tests players for performance-enhancing drugs like anabolic steroids. Testing for opioids and other so-called drugs of abuse was only done if they had reasonable cause. Last month, Major League Baseball announced their new drug testing policy, which will include mandatory opioid testing for all players. Joining me today to share his insights on these sweeping changes to the Major League drug testing policy is journalist Jared Diamond from the Wall Street Journal. So, Jared, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. So, Tyler Skaggs' overdose death last July was just, it blew everybody away. They, they just didn't see this coming. But abuse of pain pills has been a part of professional sports for a very long time. What made Major League Baseball take action now and not years ago when drug abuse first became an issue? Yeah, I think in hindsight, I think everybody in and around baseball almost felt naive for being surprised that a player eventually succumbed to this epidemic because it is something that has swept the nation. It transcends demographics. So it just stands to reason that professional baseball would not be immune to it. But because there had not been a high-profile case like this, it, it, it just sort of wasn't at the forefront of people's minds. And unfortunately, uh, it took a real tragedy to bring it to the forefront. You know, the Major League, the Major League Baseball Players Association has long uh, opposed, you know, drug testing. They initially opposed dress, uh, testing for steroids and then eventually came around on it when sort of the tide of public opinion had gone against them. And uh, when it came to drugs of abuse, so-called drugs of abuse like opiates, uh, their attitude is always, this is a privacy issue. This is uh, and they didn't necessarily trust how the league would use uh, positive testing, a positive test would that be held against players in terms of future contracts. They had always uh, been opposed to more testing. But then once Tyler died and it became clear that baseball was not immune to this issue, uh, it sort of brought both sides to the table to say, OK, how can we uh, come up with a policy that is well executed, that is about therapy and not discipline, and could hopefully prevent another Tyler Skaggs in the future. And And I think fortunately for everybody, that did happen. And, and this new policy is, is pretty much now underway as these players head to spring training next month. Before we get into that policy, I was 
just kind of blown away by some of the reports that surfaced after Tyler Skagg's toxicology report came out. The story surfaced that said that as many as five others on the team used opioids and, and the director of communications even admitted to using them with Mr. Skaggs. So, you know, if that's true, that means like 20% of the players were on opioids. How bad is the problem? I think that's the question that, that baseball is still trying to suss out. You know, we know that these are professional athletes who deal with a lot of pain as part of their job description. So perhaps it shouldn't come as a huge surprise that some of them would be looking for ways of, of relieving it. And you know, we don't know, or at least I don't know, whether Tyler Skaggs was initially prescribed these drugs. He had dealt with a lot of injuries in, in his career. He had major elbow surgery. Uh, it is not uh, unheard of for baseball teams to, in very limited quantities and under strict supervision, prescribe uh, opioids, although it's certainly not super common. It it does happen. And we don't know uh, if that was the case with Tyler. And we don't quite know yet who and how many players were were doing it. But it seems almost impossible to imagine that Tyler Skaggs was a one-off, just given uh, the nature of their profession and the nature of uh, sort of the life of of professional athletes. And I think as time goes on, we'll, we'll probably start to find out uh, just how widespread of a problem is. Rob Manfred, ma- uh, baseball's commissioner, he made a comment uh, not that long ago where he said, I think his exact quote was, it's not a good bet that we don't have some level of issue. So while I'm not sure MLB is fully, uh, fully understands the nature of the problem, I think they realize that when you're dealing with professional athletes, young men, people with money, uh, it it would be pretty surprising to imagine that it's not a problem that affects a larger population of of the players. So it's going to go into effect this spring. Can you outline the new policy and the changes? So in the past, players were only tested for what were called drugs of abuse if baseball had reasonable cause to test them, uh, which in, in practice, essentially gave players a license to do a lot of drugs, uh, these sorts of drugs, without really any fear of being tested. You know, the, Obviously, the reasonable cause testing was kept private, so we don't know just how common it was. But I, my understanding is uh, essentially it was not that typical for a player to be put into the reasonable cause sort of protocol. So nothing would indicate that Skaggs was in that program? My understanding, at the very least, what I could say to that is that Tyler Skaggs' family has no knowledge of Tyler ever being tested under that protocol. Now, is it possible that it was so private that his wife didn't know or his mother didn't know? I suppose that's theoretically possible, but I do know that Skaggs' family is under the impression that he had never been tested under that protocol. But that's not going to be an issue. Uh, in the future, because starting now, uh, starting, I guess, really now, and as we head into spring training, uh, all players will be tested. It will be mandatory testing for uh, for opioid drugs. And then a couple other drugs, what were once considered drugs of abuse, are also uh, in that uh, pool of drugs that will, that will be tested for. But the primary thing is going to be is going to be opioids, and they're going to be tested randomly, just like they would be uh, 
for PEDs. And uh, if there are positive tests, then those players will go in front of a treatment board uh, to sort of come up with a plan to help that player uh, sort of get the help he needs. There is no discipline component to this this new policy unless uh, a player were to essentially willfully fail to comply with a prescribed treatment program. But as long as the player continues to sort of in good faith uh, do what is being asked of him by the medical professionals, he will be able to con- you know, stay with his team. He will not lose any salary. He, and uh, if everything goes well, this would all remain completely confidential. So he goes before the treatment board if he tests positive and they make some type of an assessment in terms of whether or not he actually needs to get into treatment. And as long as he follows their prescription for treatment, then he stays with the team and that's that and they get help for him. Well, that's, that is the hope. You know, in many cases, as I'm sure, at least I've been told, and you could obviously speak too much more than this, in many cases, you know, inpatient uh, therapy is not required and uh, the right combination of, of therapy and medication or whatever else could allow a player to continue to perform and stay with the team during this. And yes, as long as the player is in, is in good faith complying with the program, uh, he will be able to stay with his team and continue playing. And, and that does not mean that the player cannot relapse uh, a player. I think these boards, these medical professionals in baseball understand that uh, unfortunately sometimes relapse is part of recovery and just having a relapse in and of itself is not enough to trigger any sort of discipline or, or uh, trigger any sort of idea that he was not complying with the program. To not comply with the program, that would be something that have to be uh, decided by the medical professionals, by the treatment board, uh, and, and you hope that it doesn't get to that point with any player. So I think that there's a little bit of a gray area there because um, it, it seems to read that they go ahead and assess the individual that had the positive test, and they may or may not go into treatment. So is there some guidelines around that? Well, they're not exactly public what those uh, guidelines are. We know there is this treatment board that consists of uh, medical professionals and Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association uh, are involved uh, in that process. But in terms of exactly how that diagnosis is made, I don't think we really know. Uh, But these, at least in theory, are independent medical professionals that are not working for either the league or the union. They are jointly appointed to this board uh, by both parties with the idea that they would have an objective, uh, unbiased account uh, of what the appropriate course of action is. But exactly how they come to that conclusion, uh, I don't quite I don't have a good sense of at this point. So I guess kind of the question, and in my mind, kind of the gray area is they test positive, but then they maybe come out with an assessment that says, no, they don't need treatment. Well, what happens the next time around then? Can they test positive the next time? And I don't know how that works. Yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly. It, it strikes me as hard to believe, although obviously possible, that if a player were to test positive for opioids that the treatment board would say that everything's fine you could just continue on uh 
continue on without any sort of intervention. That would surprise me. Uh, although again, I don't, I am not an expert in substance abuse or an addiction, uh, but I would have to imagine that if a player were to test positive, the inclination would be, we should probably, uh, put this player in treatment and get this player help. But I do know that there is no sort of, there is no mandatory, there is nothing that automatically triggers a suspension or some sort of discipline the way that there is in the minor leagues. The minor leagues have had a mandatory testing for opioids and other drugs of abuse for quite a few years. Their players are not unionized, allowing Major League Baseball to just unilaterally pass uh, policies. And in the minor leagues, if you test positive for for, for opioids, there it immediately triggers uh, a suspension. Or, or I think the first time, perhaps, is uh, you go in front of a treatment board. But very quickly, there are automatic suspensions for minor league players. And that was something that the Major League play, Baseball Players Union was adamant would not be the case uh, in any policy they agreed to. And and that is what happened. That that was something that was very important to the players' union. I think that there's a bit of a cat and mouse game that surrounds testing for some players. And unlike marijuana that stays in the system up to 30 days, opioids are gone within within three days, anywhere from one to three days. So won't the new testing policy introduce a kind of a new set of challenges to keep people from gaming the system? Do you think, Jared? It certainly will. And players that are using these drugs will, I am sure many of them, do what they can to not get caught. It's no different than players that are using performance-enhancing drugs, doing everything in their power to not get caught in very sophisticated ways. Uh, You know, there is testing for PEDs in baseball. There have been for years, and yet players get caught using PEDs every single year. And if you think that those are the only players using it or the ones who get caught, You'd be crazy. Uh, of course, like the, 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 the doping when it comes to PEDs has been far ahead of testing for years, and they're constantly working to stay ahead of testing. So, uh, of course, if a player is really trying to not get caught, a player is going to do what he can to not get caught. I, I think what baseball hopes, and we'll see if this ends up being the case, is that there are that people who are addicted to opioids or abusing opioids uh, actually want help and perhaps don't know how to ask for it or feel stigmatized if they ask for it or feel ashamed to ask for it. And having a a strict protocol in place for how you will be treated if, if you do get help and that there is sort of a safe way for you to ask for help that would not sort of ruin your career Uh, might inspire players that need help and know they need help to sort of come forward or not be afraid of testing positive. Now, will that happen? That's what we're going to find out. But I think that is that is the hope. And that is why there is no discipline involved in this policy is that they hope to inspire players that need help to to stand up and ask for it. You touched on this a little bit earlier, and I want to circle back to it. It's uh, it's really not uncommon for athletes to become addicted to opioids that are prescribed following surgery. Tyler Skaggs actually had Tommy John surgery. I believe it was in 2014, wasn't it? Correct. Has there been any connection made between his struggles with addiction and his recovery from that surgery and perhaps a prescription there? 
Nothing directly. However, I, I think everybody around the situation understands that the the array of injuries he's had uh, makes it certainly a, a possibility, if not a likelihood, that it played a role in his situation. Uh, people that know Tyler have made it very clear that he was uh, in constant pain for years, uh, and not just in the immediate aftermath of the surgery. You know, he had a very difficult recovery from Tommy John surgery. He missed all of 2015 and almost all of 2016. He missed almost two full seasons uh, because of that surgery. And he dealt with other injuries afterwards. Uh, he never had a full season in the major leagues. 2018, he made 24 starts, which is the most, uh, which is the highest number of games he ever pitched in a season. A typical major league season for a starting pitcher is 30 to 35 starts. He never even got the 25 because of injuries and not just the Tommy John surgery. So I, I think there is sort of an understanding that he was in a lot of discomfort and pain for much of his career. And uh, it certainly stands to reason that it played a role, although I think his family, his wife, his parents are still trying to sort of understand the nature and the extent of Tyler's addiction. Uh, they didn't they didn't know. There was a lot of surprise when it sort of became clear uh, that the person they thought they knew really well was really struggling with this this disease. And uh, I think as time goes on, there'll be more of an understanding of just what he was dealing with and, and how he was dealing with it. So I want to pivot to another big change in this, uh, this new policy. 33 states in the District of Columbia have legalized marijuana in some form or another. As part of the sweeping changes, Major League Baseball is going to stop testing for weed. What do you think the impact of that is going to be? And do you think other sports are going to follow? Yeah, this this was a big issue uh, for the players. The the players unions, one of their biggest fears about allowing mandatory testing for uh, drugs of abuse was the possibility of discipline for marijuana. Uh, one, because like you mentioned, it's legal now in many of the states that professional athletes uh, play and live. Uh, and second of all, I think they understand that uh, the sort of cultural norms around marijuana are changing and it, oh, players are probably using it recreationally, uh, legally in many cases. And there was a big fear about the possibility of players being disciplined for using it, which is a situation that we've seen in the minor leagues now for years, uh, minor league players facing discipline due to uh, marijuana use. Uh, Again, a big concern for the players. So that was sort of a, a victory, I suppose. It would be one way of thinking of it in their negotiations. And, and I do think it is a positive change and one that every single sport uh, is going to be reckoning with as the laws of the country and also there's the norms and the mores of the country continue to change over the next few years and however long, however long it takes. You know, I spoke to uh, one retired player uh, not too long ago for a story, Kyle Blanks, who was a major league outfielder uh, throughout the last decade, from 2009 to 2015, who dealt with a lot of injuries in his career. And he dealt with his own addiction, not opioids, but other medication and alcohol. And he, he said using marijuana uh, 
was an incredible help to his health and his sort of pain management. And he was only able to use it in the major leagues. When he was comfortable, he wouldn't be tested. And yet when he went to the minor leagues, he was unable to use marijuana because he would be tested. And then suddenly he would relapse into sort of using much more dangerous and addictive drugs. So I think this is being met as a positive by the players. And uh, we'll see if other sports uh, jump onto it. I think it's certainly possible. So Kyle didn't view marijuana as being a gateway drug? Because that's what a lot of people say. For him, it he did not view it that way. That's something I asked him. He he sort of downplayed that notion. Now, now granted, Kyle Kyle now is a co-owner of a farm that produces marijuana in New Mexico. So uh, he obviously feels very strongly about this topic, uh, and I appreciate that. He feels very strongly that this helped him. Uh, was incredibly beneficial to him. And he has been sort of lobbying Major League Baseball to allow marijuana, saying that it would help players perhaps not use opioids or other painkillers. Again, I am not a medical professional. I am not qualified to sort of uh, sort of validate his claims. I can just tell you what he believes. And, uh, you know, clearly baseball must believe there's at least some merit to what he's saying because uh, they're no longer going to be classifying marijuana as a drug of abuse. So a lot of the professional sports struggle with this issue, the NFL in particular. Do you expect that this is going to have a big impact on them? We'll see. The NFL has had a, a, a very strict policy when it comes to drugs. But I think the hope among industry leaders, uh, people in the addiction world and who do things like you do, uh, hope that sort of baseball will become a leader in this realm and inspire sort of widespread change that they could set a new standard for how uh, sports leagues and really just all big business in America can will, will treat this issue. Uh, that's the hope. Uh, and we'll see how the NFL responds if they respond. The NFL has in many ways been stricter about drugs of abuse than baseball throughout uh, its history, its policy was stronger in terms of the discipline for players, et cetera. Um, so we'll find out. But I, I know that people are hoping that baseball is able to set a standard that other sports and leagues can follow. In your estimation, what did Major League Baseball get right with their new drug testing policy? And what do they still need to work on? Well, of course, I, I think it's a big positive that there's, this is about treatment and not discipline. Everybody I've talked to, about this made it very clear that any policy that in many ways having a policy that involves sort of suspensions or automatic suspension suspensions or loss of wages uh, would perhaps be worse than having no policy at all uh, and i had some variation i heard some variation of that uh, over and over from many many people uh, who i would consider to be experts in this world so uh, that is certainly a, a positive. And as far as what they still need to work on, uh, I think the question, that question will be better answered once it truly goes into effect and we see how uh, it really plays out. Uh, do players feel empowered or safe uh, seeking help if they need it? Do our, our, what sort of efforts will players put in to getting around the testing? Those are all things we're going to find out over the next couple of months. and. Uh, 
The good news is, as part of the joint drug agreement between the players and the union, they are required to, every single year after the season, come to the table and have a conversation about uh, potential changes to the policy, what it should look like and how. Uh, and I'm sure at the end of this season, 2020, this will be at the top of that conversation. Uh, what, where do we go from here? How can we make it even better? Before we hopped into our interview, you were talking just a little bit about how not everything has come out yet on the Tyler Skaggs story. What's yet to come? Well, there is still an active police investigation into Tyler Skaggs' death uh, in two states, in California and Texas. The authorities there are working still to see if there's going to be any legal uh, prosecution for anybody. Uh, it's certainly within the realm of possibility that somebody is arrested. We, I, I don't know how likely that case is, but until the police investigation is closed, it remains a, a possibility without a doubt. Once that is concluded, uh, which my understanding is the hope is that it will be concluded uh, by the end of the first quarter of this year, uh, there becomes the possibility of a civil of civil action from Skaggs's Tyler Skaggs's family. He uh, his family has retained uh, a, a very sort of high powered attorney in Texas that's representing them and advising them. Uh, they've made it clear that at this point they want to wait for the end of the police investigation before potentially pursuing civil action. But I wouldn't be surprised if uh, that does happen, if they, if the family sues the angels. And that would, of course, potentially trigger a, a legal battle. And uh, we'll see where that would go. It's obviously way too soon to tell. But these are things that could still happen as, as the next couple of weeks and months uh, go on. And it, was certainly, it would certainly keep this at the forefront for the foreseeable future. Before we conclude, I want to kind of revisit a, a question that I started off with here and uh, maybe ask it a little bit different way. You've had a chance to talk with many, many uh, players uh, and management uh, within Major League Baseball. Have you begun to get a sense for how far reaching this problem and how big this problem is? I really don't have a sense yet. And I'm not sure Major League Baseball fully has a sense of it. Quite yet. Uh, there's, we know from hearing Eric Kay, the, the Angels Director of Communication, that he says that he's aware of a large, you know, fairly large contingent of current and former Angels that he knows or believes were using these drugs. We don't know who those players are. But the fact of the matter is this if Tyler Skaggs was, was, doing, was doing this, and there are quite possibly a whole bunch of other Angels players doing it. I think it would be naive to believe that they're alone, that there is not sort of a, a widespread problem to some extent, whatever that means. I don't, I don't quite know how to define widespread in this, in this case. Uh, but I think we're going to find out now. And uh, I can only hope that we do not hear any more stories like Tyler Skaggs's, that his death... Uh, is enough to sort of change and make a real positive change in baseball and stop anybody else from, from winding up in this position. Because there truly was a tragedy. It was a tragedy for baseball. And uh, it really, uh, it clearly has had a lasting impact in the trajectory of the industry and of the sport. Well, Jared, I want to thank you for your time today and all of your insight into this. 
stay tuned as uh, as their new policy gets rolled out this spring. It should be pretty interesting. But I think, as you alluded to a little bit earlier, this is really going to help a lot of players and a lot of families out there. And it'll make a difference also for the youngsters coming up as they learn more about this. Well, I certainly hope so. I, I do hope. There, there is nothing good about what happened at Haller Skag. All you could hope now is that uh, his death is able to ensure that it doesn't happen to anybody else. And that's baseball's hope. That's certainly my hope. I think it's really the hope of, ev- of anybody who's following this story. On a positive note, it looks as though the loss of Tyler Skaggs has succeeded in one respect where others have failed. The overdose deaths of high-profile athletes, such as Len Bias in basketball and Donnie Rogers in football, didn't inspire the change the way that Mr. Skaggs did. His story quickly became a compelling case for why Major League Baseball should change their approach to substance use disorder in the workplace. The new MLB drug testing policy shifts away from focusing solely on punishing drug abusers to getting them the help they need. Imagine the impact if all major sports follow Major League Baseball's lead on this. I want to thank my guest today, Wall Street Journal reporter, Jared Diamond, who has reported in-depth on this issue and provided an insider's perspective for us today on Major League Baseball's sweeping changes in their drug testing policy. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. For the latest on community events and our podcast series, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover 2 Resources. That's Cover, the number two, and Resources. As always, thank you for listening to the Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. 